The Handmaiden. Nina. This is off the list. Hello, welcome back to Off the List, the podcast where we have lists. Um, well, actually, if you're me, you have tons of lists. But the specific list that I'm talking about <laughs> is the list of movies and music that my co-host Ben and I have wanted to get to. Ben supplies the music, as you guys already know. I supply the movies. And, you know, that's just what it's shaking out to be. I think it's working out pretty well so far. Mm-hmm. You may disagree. And if you disagree, get the fuck out. Okay. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm no, kidding, you, you, have, you have to comment on our post, bring some engagement, and also <laughs> respect the fact that we wanted to take a vacation and we both watched movies and listened to music on our respective vacations, so it's fine. Yeah, right. I totally forgot to mention that. Yeah, this is a belated episode because we took some time off because we were both on vacation and it was great. Mm-hmm. I had a great time. Did you have a great time? Yeah, mine was great. I Love went that. to Olympic National Park, not to brag or anything. And OMG. now I still live in a car. So <laughs> <laughs> so none of that like energy, none of that Olympic energy, you know, rubbed off on you. No, no. You didn't get any fortune from the. No, no. I mean, mm-hmm. if anything, the Olympic energy is that I got fourth place and I just missed out on the medal. So it's all fine. Okay. Well, this week slash episode, um, our film is The Handmaiden, and our album, it's just called Nina, right? Mm-hmm. It's okay. just Nina. Great. Our album is Nina by Shushu. And we're going to start with the film. You know, just a quick, quick, quick background. The Handmaiden is released in 2016. It is a Korean film. It was directed and written by Park Chan-wook. It's inspired, actually, which I didn't know this until I started researching it, but it's inspired by the 2002 novel Fingersmith, which is, it was actually written by a Welsh writer um, named Sarah Waters. And when they adapted it, um, they changed the setting from Victoria era Britain to Korea under Japanese colonial rule, which I looked it up and is approximately 1910 to 1945. Mm. So that's the time period it's set in. Um, It is about... (laughs) again, loosely, a Korean con man who enlists a poor and orphaned Korean pickpocket slash like con woman to help him swindle a rich Japanese bachelorette out of her fortune. Um, It is very twisty turny. So if you haven't seen it, we're probably going to spoil so many things. Please go watch it and then come back. Um, But it is critically acclaimed it won the best foreign language oscar um and a whole bunch of a whole bunch of other awards i really need to do better at like i don't know centering other award shows and programs on our podcast so i will work on that because the oscars ain't shit Mm -hmm. but it did win a best foreign language oscar and currently has like a 95 percent of rotten tomatoes and 84 percent of metacritic and high scores all around um i first saw this movie in a film class Um, I was a senior, I believe, and it was actually a freshman film class. Like I was taking it because I just had free credits that, you know, I could take whatever classes I want. And I haven't stopped thinking about it since I first saw it all those years (laughs) ago. And 
I could say so much, but what I have been dying to know, maybe more than any other film we've watched so far, is Ben, what do you think of this movie? (laughs) So going into it, I did exactly what you told me to do. I did not look anything up. So I was completely blind. And I think more than any movie you show me so far, and this won't surprise you, it completely threw me for a loop. I'm telling you. I there was something about the trailer that gave me like weird spooky vibes and then for it to turn into this really long and complex and nuanced conversation on power and pleasure I was not ready for that and it really was a hard adjustment first of all this movie's long and yeah, it is. as it keeps going and it keeps unwinding and more and more things are revealed to you you wonder wow how much longer is this gonna go like you keep thinking you've reached like the end point or then it's gonna have this like hard stop and then it just keeps going but in terms of how i feel about it before i kind of dig into things that i thought were really interesting about it it's easily one of the most thought-provoking movies in like coolest movies that you've shown me And one of those movies that I feel smarter for knowing, if that makes sense, and smarter for having seen, where I feel like even if I didn't fully understand, and I know I didn't fully understand everything that it was trying to say, the fact that I even sat down and tried to listen for two and a half hours, I'm like, okay, I feel a lot more full because of it. And... I just wasn't expecting all the themes, especially about sex and power and the way in which they just keep peeling back those layers and everything comes back in one of one of way to that kind of sexual undertone in the movie is really fascinating to me. Even how things that are banal in the first act, because the movie split into three acts, and then in the second act is really sexual, and then in the third act it becomes banal again, or vice versa, they do it another way. Um and they're just constantly retelling the same story essentially from different perspectives and different narratives, it unwinds and you really leave the movie feeling like you have a complete picture, but additionally, you still feel like you want to almost rewatch it because there must have been things you missed because there's so many little symbols and knickknacks throughout it. So yeah, it was really fascinating, really interesting. I definitely missed a lot, um, but... I think that especially it's kind of comments on pleasure, even if I don't fully have them parsed out yet, feel important to me. So I I actually want to talk about them with you because I need someone to like bounce ideas off of. Yeah, I man, this movie impressed the hell out of me when I first saw it. I think it takes a really careful just consideration to craft a movie that is on the boundary of so many things like it's Mm -hmm. on the boundary of um camp and like seriousness it's on the boundary of surrealism and realism it's on the boundary of like straightforward narrative storytelling and completely not that um Mm -hmm. and i think for it 
to be able to to like ride that line in so many different spheres so successfully was just like it just I watched this movie and was like what am I watching like this is insane but I didn't fully realize the way cinematography is working in this film until I just watched it recently and it's working so hard. It is doing yeah. can, so much can of you the heavy please, lifting. Can you please tell me about it? Because from my perspective, I was witnessing what seemed to be just like a Wes Anderson shot side by side with what I can only kind of compare to like a Quentin Tarantino like zoom out and pull. And like, again, yeah. these, these are from my like naive, like I don't know that much about film kind of perspectives on like art directors who I know who do those kind of shots. But like there's so many different styles of shots done in this movie. And I really want to like know more about what they might mean and how they work. So for me, the film, and again, I'd have to like watch it again to really tease this out and to pay attention to the cinematography more outright. But to me... The film isn't as close to Wes Anderson as one might think. So I think when a lot of people think of Wes Anderson, my king, my white king, (laughs) they they think of um, organization, which is true. But I think where Wes Anderson succeeds is combining organization and symmetry, particularly with color and a very specific like color scheme or use of color. And I, I think that that's actually really integral to his films and his style. And so I would hesitate to say that this film kind of resembles that, but I think it resembles more of like Kubrick style films where Mm. everything seems perfectly placed and the composition of the shots is so like well considered and thought out and so what really struck me throughout the film is number one how often it's stuck to the rule of thirds like Park Chan-wook was really I mean he was like what we will have is we will have heavy composition on the ends and kind of like empty space in the middle and you can Mm -hmm. like count that shit like that like I literally watched one scene and snapped every time when the camera cut and it was like on the rule of thirds which is honestly how most films are made but like the balance of it leaned so heavily like the composition was so heavy on those outer thirds that Mm -hmm. it is so striking and that kind of gives order in a sense right but it also pushes things to the margins and makes everything just a little bit more like questionable right like people are on the margins their viewpoints are on the margins maybe their feelings are on the margins they are on the margins and you're on the margins with them and you're kind of like this is very interesting and the film does have a lot of like people watching other people you know and Mm -hmm. i think that that kind of plays into that and the camera always is panning to show that where you'll have a scene and it will remind you who is spying in that scene right right and then the other thing it does is in the composition uses lines so readily to make you feel as trapped as the characters do like there's Mm -hmm. often and a lot of it has to do with like traditional japanese architecture but i also think the fact that they have english british style rooms in the house lets you know that when they use those rooms that have lines or when they're in the forest and they have lines when it focuses on lines that literally kind of 
trap you in like a like bars in a jail cell like it feels very confined and it feels very rigid until you sort of get these scenes that are a bit more exploitive whether in a positive way or in a way that absolutely makes you sick to your stomach yes Um, because there's a lot of that um but in those scenes that are a bit more free or a bit more like off the rails it's less trapped and it's more just like the camera work becomes a little bit less predictable and you know the composition of the shots becomes a little less rigid and it's it's very like the the cinematography is actually really really doing a lot of the heavy lifting of how you feel and it does that in every movie so obviously it's like whatever Nadira but in this movie in particular it's very noticeable and it's very planned so in I I will say this is the kind of spoiler heavy part but to kind of summarize the like I guess basic plot um, within this kind of deceit is that the servant who is brought to be the handmaiden mm-hmm. roll credits is <laughs> told that they will lock up this rich woman after they marry her in a mental asylum and the two the man and her will run away mm-hmm. meanwhile the man has additionally told that to the rich woman that they're going to lock up the servant they're going to switch their identities and they're going to run away but even before that, it was actually partially like the um, rich bachelorette. It was partially her idea. She yes. was the one who was like, find me a maid. Find me someone who can disappear and no one will care. Like, mm-hmm. this is the plan. Like, if you want to do this, this is the plan. Yes. And then the wrinkle comes in the fact that the two women fall in love with each other. Yes. And the movie ties in a lot of. I think erotic themes in terms of perception and then what a person actually wants and what a person gets. And they do that a lot, especially in like the final act when he is asking for like a really apt description of their wedding night. But regardless, the two women then conspire a plan to essentially run away together and get away from this man. And what it turns into is that the movie takes you for this loop for originally you think that the maid is falling in love and is trying to protect this naive woman. And then in the second act, you think that that woman's a fucking bitch and has just completely screwed over the maid. And then in the third act, you realize, Oh wait, no, they tricked me one more time past that. And they're actually conspiring together to get both of each other like to get out. And those just like constant flips really keep you on your toes. And I think they keep you way more attentive to when the movie digs into kind of an aesthetic or odd scene, such as them on the boat together or the torture scene, I think is really fascinating in the third act. It, it's, it's obviously hard to watch, but the torture scene is one of those scenes where I feel like a lot about the movie is being said and I kind of almost want to watch it like 20 times to really understand what it's saying but it it just really feels to me a lot like the comments on being erotic and being perceived as erotic and when a person actually wants to have some form of pleasure or sex in their life are all like very vastly different things especially within the male gaze that's very much what i took from just my first look like watch yeah and i think that that's very apt like i think that's very correct and i think the film also says a lot about like 
yeah so basically there's the movie is so long and there's so many moving parts and not only do you find major shifts um between the acts which one of the major shifts that you didn't mention was that also in the first act you don't realize that the rich japanese woman is actually in yeah on the plan exactly um you don't realize that until the second act when you find out she's in on it and then you think she's a bitch right Mm -hmm. um but in addition to all of that it's like as the acts go on you are slowly finding out about um the trauma the past traumas of particularly the rich Japanese woman and her family history, you're finding out slowly, surely what exactly the fuck she's doing with her uncle or what the uncle is doing with her. Mm -hmm. You're finding out slowly, surely, you know, like everyone's true intentions. The fucking small ass reveal that you get in like the second or third act that the, the like mistress of the house who's like in charge of all the maids and stuff was the former wife of the uncle is yeah. like, it's like, mm-hmm. and, and they say it as like, it's a passing thing. And I'm like, there's yeah. levels to this shit that I couldn't even, the uncover. writing, the writing in this movie is fucking crazy. It's like at my head was hurting the whole time. It is. It is. It's so good. It's so insane. And like, I just, I think, but anyway, sorry. To get back to what you're saying, because you were saying something really important. Yes. I think the movie Mm -hmm. is definitely about that. And what I was trying to sort of also get to is that while it's also about um, like eroticism and pleasure, um, who's entitled to it, who can even access it through the male gaze and all that stuff it's also at the same time about the other end of the coin of pleasure which is like abuse right and yeah it's about the sort of like how far can abuse go without physical abuse you know or how far can emotional abuse go without sexual abuse and sexual abuse go you know as like as opposed to emotional abuse. And I think it says a lot. It says so much about the pain that you can inflict on someone else. First, without trying. Second, by trying. And third, like without even, by being like on two opposite ends of the room. You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of the most like horrible scenes for me to watch are a lot of the scenes of the uncle coaching the rich Japanese woman, his niece, um, into like reading these erotic stories for men. And he's doing that. He's inflicting the most pain on her while being on the opposite ends of like an eight foot long fucking table. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I think, there's and all these men who are watching her do this thing are also abusing her while being feet away like in seats while she's on a stage and i think that it says so much about the sort of like emotional sexual psychological abuse that you can feel without the physical abuse and then i mean like you said there's a whole torture scene so it says a lot about physical abuse as well like don't get me wrong but i think Mm that it just has such smart things to say about those pieces separately and then how they can all influence each other. And I think the eroticism just as much as it like gives you an insight on pleasure and kind of how that functions. It also gives you an insight on, like you were saying earlier, power and how that functions and how that functions in relation to both abuse and pleasure. And I 
particularly enjoy that this film does that with a lesbian couple. Yes. I, you yeah. never see that at all. And you certainly never see lesbian sex scenes that are as explicit as mm-hmm. the ones that you see it, in this film. And not even just explicit, explicit in the way where or force the viewer into angles of lesbian sex, for example, like the, you're the mouth going to like start oral sex like that. And, but like from the perspective of like, if you were the vagina, like it is like, a, like angles like that are so just unthought of. I feel like in the idea of erotic pleasure. And so to really highlight and focus in on them is spectacular. And then one other major thing that I want to reference because I think it's fascinating is the ways in which the man who, when he eventually dies after all of the torturing, it shows what he's thinking about in those final moments in the way that those shots kind of drag across the seat, um, the screen slowly. And they're all about those moments where he had this power over this woman who actually eventually tricked him. Those just felt like some of the most powerful moments of the film to me because of the way that it highlighted what was important to this person and what truly for lack of a better phrase got them off and what they wanted to think about in their last moments before death yeah i've never seen a freeze frame that didn't make me cringe until i saw this movie (laughs) yeah they were so good they They were were so so good i can't believe i can't believe that they just dragged the picture that like slowly they freeze it and you're just like how is this because it feels like you're dying with him because they're the breath is so loud in the audio yeah i don't know it, it this scene was just so affecting because it really like humanized this perspective of the abuser and in a weird way almost the respect he had for the person that he was abusing which is like a very complicated and nuanced position this movie is just great for talking about those things like so great for talking about those things um i can't wait after this conversation that we've had to force you to watch portrait of a lady on fire um (laughs) i absolutely can't wait um oh man so that's definitely not coming up next but in the future in the future it's on the horizon it's (laughs) solidly on the horizon solidly on the horizon you definitely gave me a pretty intense movie to watch but i admittedly also gave you maybe the most intense (laughs) album (laughs) that we've done so far the album that we're listening to is nina by shushu who are shushu I'm really glad you asked. Not enough people have. I was going to ask because, wow. <laughs> an experimental rock or art rock is sometimes, I've heard what they're called, like art punk, art rock, whatever weird combination of, we're not quite sure what they're doing, words you want to use, um, by Jamie Stewart and Angela Sio. Those are the two members who have stayed consistent the whole time, but they do constantly have new people cycling in for their albums. They're a very prolific band. They're usually putting out something new every year. Even as we record this, they actually just put out a new single last week. And their music is undeniably freaky. It goes in a ton of different directions, but they're extremely famous beyond their really great solo and original material, their covers material. They've done covers of Twin Peaks and then 
most critically in my mind they've done this cover album of nina simone's music which they explicitly say is a reimagining of nina's music rather than recreating her music that's the words they they explicitly use in kind of covering this album and it has jamie as the singer chess smith is the drummer tim Byrne and tony malaby are the saxophonists and then andrea parkins plays accordion and mary halverson plays guitar and this album was recorded in a single day while they were on tour with a band called swans which just like a portrait of lady on fire you will also know about swans one day but regardless it is really hard to describe this album i don't even try i just put it on for people or tell them to listen to it so nadira what was your like first 20 seconds of listening to this that's what i want to know more than like i want to know your first 20 seconds and then your last 20 seconds (laughs) okay um uh how do i answer this because i have so many thoughts um okay just to actually answer your question the first 20 seconds like when i press play my first thought was what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) Um, my second like immediate visceral reaction was i turned the volume down yes because i don't like when people whisper in my fucking ear yeah i don't i'm not that's not um i find it so creepy Mm -hmm. so I, tur- I did turn the volume down. I was like, you're not going to be whispering in my ear all loud and shit. And I had like my noise canceling <laughs> headphones on. I was like, absolutely mm-hmm. the fuck not. We're not canceling any outside <laughs> noise. I need the, <laughs> the outside noise. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. My last 20 seconds are really a complex, a complex feeling because by then I had developed actual opinions about the album. I, you know, I'm really glad to, to finally tell you this man i've been mm-hmm. waiting how many i've been waiting how many episodes of this show have we done this is like we're, what 12 this, or 13 yeah, we're or 12 we're 12 so and we do them like every two weeks so i've been yeah. waiting like 24 weeks to tell mm-hmm. you this i did not like this <laughs> <laughs> there it is there it is i did it i fucking did it let's go um but the co- the complex notion of that is like sonically is it interesting yes i will 100 percent give it that like it's very captivating very interesting but every time like i remembered in my brain that these were nina simone songs i actually got angry yeah and i was like i <laughs> don't like this <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah. If, if i may let me explain to the audience if who hasn't potentially heard this project what Shushu is doing in particular what Jamie is doing because I think what Jamie yes. is doing yes is the most the thing that could be the most offensive potentially yes um, yes, yes 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 so what they are doing on this album is in reimagining a lot of Nina Mo- Nina Simone's songs and songs that she has used really great performances of Jamie because Shushu as a project and him are kind of obsessed with this idea of creepiness and this uncanny valley that exists within music and within arts and culture 
there's like an interview of him where he talks about how he owns like a million masks and they all just kind of like sit in his all like on the wall in his apartment so he's just kind of one of those guys he's kind of a weird he's dude. really like he's you know what he is he's the music musical version of matthew gray googler yes he really <laughs> is that's a very i really like that but so the music that exists underneath like the bed for jamie's singing is really detached clanky mm-hmm. but also quite quaint and beautiful arrangements it is really beautiful yeah, yeah where it is really like i said simple and how it's usually just a couple saxophones playing these really gorgeous tightly knit melodies that are actually the melodies that nina is usually singing you occasionally have drums in to support some guitar some accordion and all of these instruments swirl to create this really loose bed with a lot of space that as you're listening to it, it's really pleasant like it's a very beautiful rendition of a lot of her sounds and then jamie starts to sing and i kid you not when she said oh i turned it down because it was he is in he's in the mic doing this yeah to the songs and he is he is going so so hard with the bit like so much further than anyone else would be willing to commit to this idea of being like spooky or creepy or whatever and the reason why he's doing it is because he is obsessed of the trauma and the horror that exists in Nina's music. Because I do think that those are two aspects that exist when her singing. And like a very common example that a lot of people might recognize is how eerie Blood on the Leaves can be when you mm. like listen to just Nina's sample and how, you know, for like the reference point, like Kanye wanted to bring that in because he found it so eerie and captivating. That Ugh. kind of like emotion and idea. I have a lot of complicated feelings on yeah, that sample. Yeah, we don't have so to get do in. I. We don't have to get into it. But regardless, like it's undeniable that Nina's music carries this eeriness and this trauma mm-hmm. to it. And absolutely, what Jamie said is, I want to take that part of the music, which is why she's one of my favorite singers. And he just dials it to a fucking thousand. And it is so polarizing. It is. I, I am never upset if someone says they hate this shit because it, honestly, half the time I thing. listen to it, I fucking hate it. So I please tell me more about it. But that's like a description <laughs> of what it sounds like. Yeah. Here's my thing. Um, the thing about Nina Simone. So Nina Simone is like one of my f- favorite artists of all time. And the thing about Nina Simone was that there is 100% trauma and horror in her music. But the the phenomenal thing about like the thing that actually makes Nina Simone most revolutionary to me is that you can feel all of that without having to do any extra shit like she can break your heart by being just straight with you and the whole point of her music to me especially as a black person is the accessibility of what she's saying like the accessibility of the story she is telling you and what she is saying. And you don't need, like, it's so plain, like, because being black just fucking sucks. Like, mm-hmm. like it's so, like, we don't need to like dress it up or do any of this shit. Like it sucks sometimes. And when Nina Simone was alive, it sucked a lot more than it does now. Yeah. <laughs> and 
you know, she was able to carry that trauma and to carry these like really heartbreaking stories so easily, but making them accessible to both black people and the masses. And what this album to me then does is turns around and makes her music so inaccessible mm-hmm. that it actually makes me angry. Like it's like it's it's not about like I understand like the whole like you wanted to take these themes and kind of like turn them up to 11, but um it's like it's like it's kind of like it like leapfrogs over the point you know what i mean in a in a way that only non-black people could like Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like there seems to be like a fundamental disconnect between and i'm just one person it's just my opinion but between what i believe nina simone's music stands for and the way it stands for those things versus like i guess how they perceive nina simone's music and what it stands for and the way it stands for those things and i think that that's what really upset me because then i went back so i listened to the album and then i listened to the album and like did the cue thing where it was like Mm -hmm. it was like their song and then her song and then their song and then her song yeah and then i went and listened to some of their original stuff and i was like okay so you don't sing like this all the time like you really no he played it up did it he played it up for this this. yeah and that was almost worse like Mm -hmm. i was almost kind of like i mean if you're if the rest of your music sounded like this, I would have been like, all right, dude, cool. Sure. Yeah. Whatever. This is your thing. But it didn't. And so I was like, okay, so I mean, you know, this is fundamentally like if we're two people, if me and this album or me and Shushu, like, or if we're two people like sitting at a table, right? Like our hands are folded, they're on the desk and we're agreeing to disagree. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah. respectfully mm-hmm. agreeing to disagree with each other. Yeah. And I will say that, I I first listened to this album when I was 16 and I had like a really high opinion of it and what it was doing and how it was pushing boundaries when I first listened to it. And especially in the past couple of years, I have had a lot of recontextualization from it. Um, And I do agree a lot with what you're saying. I think that everything you're saying is completely valid. And I think in recent interviews, Jamie has even gone as far to say that he doesn't particularly love this album um anymore and he thinks that the effort kind of he allowed his own theatrics to kind of get in the way of representing how much he really loves her music it was giving Mm -hmm. very much like you're trying too hard it was giving very much you're trying too hard but like boo you're trying and we love that Mm -hmm. but like you're trying too hard boo boo yeah don't do that and i guess also mm reimagining nina simone's music is like great but also who asked you (laughs) yeah That's like the, why that's what like crazy weird experimental people do. They just like that's do true. the weirdest shit. They're just like, you didn't ask for this, but here it is. And you're like, oh, thank you. I guess that is and, big facts. And I will say that I think part of the reason why I keep coming back to this project personally is because of the instrumental bedding that exists underneath it. I just it so is really great. I'm so obsessed with the instruments underneath that sometimes I'm able to kind of just like, just, like tune out what Jamie's doing on top. But yeah, I will say in a little bit of defense for the project. And this is kind of the way that I think Jamie visualized it. And also the way that I've originally visualized it, not to say that this is perfectly correct or anything, but just it's how I thought about this um, album in context, especially why I might appreciate it is that I agree that that horror and eeriness is so apparent in Nina Simone's music, but sometimes it takes something clearly jarring to really hype it up to 11 for someone who exists in a really like privileged or unaware space 
to actually key in and then pay attention to that every other time they're listening to that music. And I would say that that was kind of a similar experience for me. Like I always thought there was something haunting about Nina Simone. And then I listened to this project and then going back, I just had so much more of a deeper appreciation for how she ties it in. And as you said, makes it accessible because what Shushu is doing here is not accessible. If you could throw on one song that would just absolutely destroy any party, it would be don't smoke in bed. That song would destroy any party anywhere. And I, I think that music like that is very bold and compelling and interesting. And I like how when I was young and really oblivious to a lot of what was going on in the world and America, especially with being black, it kind of opened my eyes. Um, But I totally agree that for someone who's actually black, it probably just completely reads his theatrics. Here's my thing, though, is I feel like, yeah, that might have been the truth. But I feel like a lot of it had to do with the fact that you were young and not the fact that you wouldn't have gotten it because I know a lot Mm -hmm. of people who like you know they listen to blood on the leaves they listen to Kanye West's sample of it which like you know for me like TLDR the song is a fucking bop but I hate it because it appropriates the sort of like meaning of the original sample so horrendously but also like it's so fucking good anyway the best beat ever the worst song ever song ever right (laughs) that's my TLDR on the, the that song but I know a lot of people who are like, who like eventually got it, you know? And I think a lot of it mm-hmm. has to do with like, they were engaging with Nina's music at a time where they weren't ready to receive it. Not that her music couldn't do the job of reaching them. And yeah. I think that that to me again is like, again, she's just so accessible. Like you just listen to her and your heart breaks no matter who you are. And I was just really listening to these songs. Like if they weren't Nina Simone songs, I would really like this, but they are. Mm. And I'm sorry. Like, I can't distinguish the, like, I'm just like, it's almost not fair. Yeah. But like the whole point of doing a covers album is building on that context. Right. And so that's the context I'm coming in with. And it it just is like, I'm, I'm like, listen, man, I'm sorry, man, but I can't, you don't, you don't have to apologize to me. In fact, I think it's good because, Like you said, you listen to some of their other stuff. So you have a context and you have an understanding. And like you might have listened to like I Love the Valley O, which is a very popular song by them. And I actually had heard that and was like, oh, I think I've heard this song before and was Mm -hmm. really proud of myself. Yeah, exactly. And um, like those songs are all great and awesome. And I guess I, I love this album because to me, it has always represented kind of the failings and the trappings of what an experimental album can be. And I sometimes like listening to it kind of as a reminder of what is the point of experimentation if it you can't actually grasp it and understand it. And especially as my thinking of it has evolved, I almost appreciate it as kind of like this timepiece of an album that tried so hard to do what it was trying to do and commemorate it and kind of and and definitely like you said leapfrog over the point it missed the mark but at the same time there are still so many interesting and commendable aspects to it that i like recommending it to people because i think every time the conversation is interesting i usually end up more agreeing now at the point that the album is overdone and tacky and i pretty much almost never put it on like when I listen to Shishu, I would always put on mm. their Twin Peaks cover album, which is really yeah, that's tasteful. the one I really want to listen to. It's really, it's really great. And 
I, I wanted to, this is going to sound like very evil, but like I wanted to give you the one that I thought you'd have a really strong opinion to. And I yeah, thought, no, I love that. And I thought if I gave you the Twin Peaks one, you'd just be like, this is a fucking bop, man. They fucking killed yeah. it. But then if I give you this one, I know that you're going to be like, oh, we got thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I did. I have so many thoughts. But um, yeah, I think that that's, and that's totally fine because you know me. I love a hard conversation. <laughs> Mm-hmm. one thing we have in common is that we both fucking love hard conversations and i don't know why we do that to ourselves <laughs> but <laughs> um but yeah no and i really did enjoy it but i do have to say like you know i do say that like if they weren't nina simone songs i would have liked them i wouldn't have loved them still mm-hmm. like they're still a bit too like again giving like trying too hard just a little bit much but i because of that was more aware of the instrumentation than I have been on almost any other lyrical album that we've done. Mm-hmm. And was just like, well, I'm just going to vibe out to this part and <laughs> ignore what he's yeah. doing mm-hmm. so that I could like get to this. And, you know, the instrumentation was really, really awesome. And so I'm, I'm excited. And I did like the other, like the other, their original few songs that I like tapped into just to see kind of what they were about. Um, so I'm excited to like listen to more of them, but I think generally, I'm someone who's very particular about the way Nina Simone has honestly and earnestly just been bastardized by like the music and media industry. Um, And sometimes I feel like, you know, there's a lot of earnest homage paid to her, but sometimes I feel like she's just, just so brutally mistreated, Mm -hmm. like in a sense of like art and creativity. Um, and so I'm very protective of her in that way. And by well-meaning people, because I would think that, and I, I honestly, at this point in my life now, agree with that opinion that, like, in a way, they did. I don't know if "take advantage" is the correct word. You might have a better word for yeah, it. Yeah, I wouldn't but, say "take advantage." Yeah, maybe but, misconstrue. Yeah, like know. yeah, like misconstrued what she stood for. But it was so, and it, it was from the opposite because you you can't listen to this album and tell me that they don't really sincerely appreciate and love Nina, but you can yeah. say they didn't know how to properly administer that and right. create a compelling reimagining of her songs. For, or I would and actually, hey. I, it is compelling, but it is, it is maybe to dare use a silly word problematic. <laughs> Ooh, not the silly word. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, you know, at the end of the day, like all things said and done, I really appreciate artists who take risks. I really appreciate experimental artists because like I could sit here and review it all day, but I would never be bold enough to like do something like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, anything I write is not like I'm not out here writing fucking crazy shit like I could never. So, you know, I do appreciate Are we just queuing it. up the Ratatouille speech in the... <laughs> In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. (laughs) (laughs) I know you did not just call me Anton fucking Ego. Oh, God. 
Oh man, I'm so glad that I rewatch that speech every other week so that I just burn into my memory when you anyone references it. <laughs> I still think that they are one of the most essential experimental bands. And I think that it's interesting to say like, here's a really essential experimental band and here's something that they did that's polarizing. Not necessarily that's their best or it's great. Just this album very fully represents like what Shushu stands for, which is taking any concept or idea that they're working on and turning it up to 11 and really just seeing what the results bear out and clearly as you've shown it's not always perfect but i think that the work they do is unparalleled and the experimentation that they do is really spectacular so i would say if you're going to listen to them this is probably not the easiest project to first listen to i'd recommend like i love the valley O or their twin peaks or even their latest album where they have a ton of collaborations all of those are far more accessible and far easier to listen to but if you're feeling crazy throw this on and turn down the volume because he will whisper in your ear a lot Mm. yeah turn just yeah do yourself a favor and turn that volume down a little bit and so you know what you've gotten yourself into because that shit is scary cool well now that we're not immediately going on vacation we do have another week that will be coming up right around in two weeks so in terms of what you'll be listening to we'll start with that first there is at times i feel like i'm kind of pulling a lot more modern um i don't pull in a lot of artists that are like say like prior to the 2000s but in some ways i think it's because while it's like fun to pull from really old genres the most important or like interesting conversations to me are often the ones that exist and kind of mutate our current sense of music. And there is to introduce this album, I'm going to say my favorite fun fact about it, which is it came out in 2015. It is a rap album and on rate your music. It actually won album of the year over Kendrick's to pimple butterfly so somehow so it's an album that has a lot of incredibly I passionate... already hate it <laughs> <laughs> it's an album that has a lot of incredibly passionate fans um i don't know if i would go that far but i do think that it has snuck under the radar for being incredibly influential and also just a fascinating side avenue that hip-hop existed in in the past decade and it's milo's so the flies don't come and it has my favorite album cover of all time, probably, throwing that out there. So when you look at it, you can be like, oh, man, Ben's such an emo bitch. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure all of the levels to what I'm looking at right now, but it's intriguing for sure. Yes, and there are so many cool things about this album. Um, it's pretty short. It's only about 30 minutes. Um, and I think that you're going to have a really great time with it and it will not be as anywhere near as exhausting as this week. (laughs) I promise you. Ard. He's cute. Mm. I feel Mm. like I am going to enjoy myself. Oh yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm going to be completely honest. We did not talk about this. Like we didn't plan this the way we kind of usually do. Um, and so I didn't know like, I basically chose something 
right before we started recording is what I'm saying. So this may not be a good fit and it wasn't even strongly considered. Um, but I do know that I wanted to give you some, I wanted to give you some Spike Lee Mm -hmm. at some point. And of course, naturally like do the right thing would have been the number one main film I would have wanted to recommend to you, but you've already seen it, which is because I took because I took one film class in my life and it was the first one we watched. Yeah, and I love like it's I, it makes me so freaking happy that you've seen that. Mm. Um, so I'm gonna pivot kind of to a different Spike Lee film. You're gonna be watching School Days, which I know zero about. Yeah, School Days is one of the most formative films i think about students who go to historically black universities colleges and universities Mm -hmm. um it's very much like it's kind of like homecoming by beyonce but before there was homecoming by beyonce right like Mm -hmm. and i don't i'd have to research this but i don't know that there's been such an in-depth like a film that's so drenched in HBCU culture before this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be the first, but I'm not, I'm just not entirely sure about that. Um, so don't hold me to it, but I think it's really fascinating. It's not as critically acclaimed as some of Spike Lee's other films are. So we can definitely talk about that, but I think that you'll find it really interesting. And I hope, hope that it meshes well with the album. There is literally a bar on here where Milo calls himself bookish. So I mm-hmm. I think that we're in good – we're at least going to have a good shot here. Great. Love that. Love that for <laughs> us. We really just did that then. Oh, if it works out, I'll be so proud of us. Like Seriously, especially with um, both of us just in such states of chaos, it feels like. <laughs> I'm hanging on by a thread. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I feel like I haven't eaten dinner yet. I feel like I'm going to eat dinner and then pass out and then wake up and do it all over again. And with that, this has been Off the List. <laughs> That's Ben. I'm, I'm Anton Ego. I hope that you guys have. Handmaiden. Seriously do it. Shoo shoo. Probably not Nina, but definitely do the band. <laughs> or if you just want to have really strong opinions about something then yeah listen to it all right bye everyone thanks for sticking around throughout vacation bye and i hope you guys get to go on vacation too take that pto do Mm. it girl and girls gender neutral by the way okay bye (laughs) bye bye Off the List is made by Ben and me, Nadira. Our artwork is by Rebecca Pearson, and our music is by Cedric Hawkeyes.